Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. Acting is not trusting God when it involves sinning. Are you treating girls like your sisters? Let's review real quick on Ruth. Ruth, we know it's a small book, four chapters. It's read at the beginning of Pentecost. Pentecost is, is the celebration of the first fruits and of provision. And Ruth is a story all about God's provision. It also happens right around the beginning of the first fruits of the harvest is when the story starts. Um, the book barely mentions God, um, and there's no miraculous acts. There's no just you know water into wine moments. And the reason that we don't have that is because the author, he wants you to find God's blessings and God's uh, workings in the text without it being that blatant. Because qu- quite frankly, in our own lives, it's not usually that blatant, right? We have to look for... God being a part of our lives, but when we begin to look for that, we see it everywhere. And that's what the author is trying to show us. Um, Ruth is also essential to our understanding of redemption. Without Ruth, redemption is just a slave transaction. You are a slave and you're bought by a different master. right? But Ruth changes our understanding of redemption because it shows us that God loves us and He has a legal right to redeem us, not just the right amount of money, right? God has a legal right to redeem us, and He cares about us. Uh, so week one, we see this rich family that leaves the promised land because um, my well, the indication that I get from the text is that they are not trusting in God, right? They, they move away from home because they don't trust God to provide or they don't want to get squeezed by that famine. So they move out, they go to Moab, and then on top of that, the two sons in the family, they marry Moabite women, which was... Um, the Old Testament instructed the Israelites not to marry foreign women. And then they all three, the two sons and the father, all three die while away. And now all you're left with is these three widows, mom and these two step, um, not stepdaughters, um, daughters-in-law that are Moabites, right? And then there's this moment where uh, Naomi, the mom, she says, go back to your lives, go back to your families. You can remarry, you can have a normal life, like things can go well for you. And one of the, the daughters, she goes away. She's sad, but she goes away and goes back to her normal life. And Ruth, on the other hand, she says, I won't do it. I won't do it. Not only will I not do it, I'm going to burn all my bridges. I'm going to follow you all the way to the grave and beyond the grave. And she makes a declaration for faith in, in Naomi's God. She says, your God will be my God. I'm going to serve him. So uh, they come back, and they come back right at the beginning of the harvest. And then in, in uh, chapter 2, Ruth decides that she's going to immediately get to work keeping her pledge to Naomi. She's going to go out and she's going to glean the field. But when she goes out to glean, she realizes that gleaning is not a really profitable endeavor. She needs something extra if she's going to feed two mouths from gleaning. So she basically makes a, an inappropriate request. Right? She says, I want to glean among the sheaves, which is the piles of the grain that were that were stacked up and bundled and this was not allowed because the maybe because the gleaners were it would have been easy for them to steal 
from the, the piles or something like this, but that just wasn't a thing. It's not, it's inappropriate in like a cultural sense. Like they would have heard that request and gone, what, are you crazy? No, of course you can't glean among the sheaves. But she makes this request anyway because she's so determined to provide for her mother-in-law. And then Boaz, by God's providence, who's the owner of the field and, and probably many more, he just happens to show up to the same field at the same time and see Ruth. And he's heard of Ruth by reputation, but now he's seeing her for the first time, and he immediately grants her request. And then not only does he grant her request, but he elevates her status. He invites her to eat with his with his uh, harvesters, right? And so this begins the second theme that we see in the book, which is the grafting of the Gentiles into God's promises. Because, because up to this point, there's still kind of this question lingering of if only the Israelites can receive this coming redemption from God that he's been promising since Abraham. But this is one of the times where God is displaying to them that it doesn't have to do with where you were born, where you come from, or your, your family, it's about your heart. It's about what kind of person you are. And if you're serving God, you are his people and you're going to receive his redemption. And then th- that chapter, it ends interesting. One of my favorite verses of the Bible is in that chapter because she says, why to Boaz? And he says, I've seen your devotion to do what God has called you to do, to follow God. And then she gets not just what she needs, she gets more than she needs of it. And I say it like that because, again, she didn't get a Ferrari, right? She didn't get stuff she didn't need in abundance. She got what she needed, but she got an excess of what she needed. And that's God's blessing, right? Because God, God wants you to know he recognizes your devotion to him. He sees it, right? And, and because he sees it, he wants to, he wants to love on you and show you that that affection and then chapter two ends with a a forecast of god's provision ending it ends and it says that ruth was there until the end of the second harvest right and so what we're seeing there is this idea that maybe provisions coming to an end like maybe there's not going to be more food around the corner so why does god let provision in god lets provision end to move us. If everything's okay all the time, if there's nothing wrong, there's no reason to move. Like, why would I go somewhere else? I have everything I need right here. So God's going to provide this lull in their provision. So look with me, if you will, at at Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then her mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may go well for you? Now then, is Boaz not our relative, with whose young women you were? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not reveal yourself to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall, and it shall be when he lies down that you shall take notice of the place where he lies. And you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say, I will do. Okay, so God provides this potential gap in their provision, right? And this spurs movement. What are we going to do next, right? And Naomi has a plan. Something I deal with a lot when I'm talking to people is this question. When do I trust God and when do I act 
When do I move? When do I get going? The question really should be, when is acting not trusting? You trust God to sustain your life, but you still eat, right? You don't just sit there and go, if God really wants to sustain my life, food will just appear in my stomach. You eat food, which is you acting, but that's no less you trusting that God is the one sustaining your life. So when do I act? When is acting not trusting God? Acting is not trusting God when it involves sinning. When you're sinning to to accomplish what you think God's ends for you are. Another thing that is, it's by definition not trusting God when you put limits on how far you'll trust God with something. That is not trusting God in your acting. I met a girl once. She told me that God had promised her that she would be a mother. Now, I'm not going to discuss whether or not this, that she actually had that promise from God. We didn't necessarily get into that. But she told me that if she wasn't a mother by a certain age, she was going to go to a sperm bank and, and initiate that process on her own. Now, I think you can make an argument that that's sinful, but that's really not my point. The point is, she only trusted God up to a point. If God really did tell her, you're going to be a mother, does she need to take it into her own hands in a way that I would argue is not God's natural way to do it? That's her not trusting God with a promise. That's, by definition, acting outside of your trust. That's not the same as eating food and trusting that God will sustain you. So the question here is what is Naomi's motivation? She says it's for your future and for your security that it may go well, right? So right now, this is, this is not Naomi just looking out for her, her best interests or herself or trying to, to handle God's provision. She's looking out for her family, for her daughter-in-law. She identifies Boaz as a relative. And then, and then this gets into something tricky, and we've kind of referenced this, this idea of the kinsman redeemer. One of God's chief concerns in the Old Testament was that families not die out. That was a tragedy. When a family died out completely, when there was no heirs to carry on that family name, that family's lineage just disappeared. And, and God, that, that was a, not a good thing, right? And so the interesting thing about Israel's law is that it had mercy and love baked into it. I think a lot of times when we look at justice, justice is just kind of this um, dry, calculated, eye-for-an-eye type mentality. But justice in the Old Testament had a lot of mercy and love in it. It was, it was designed to be a social code as well to where they were taught how to treat other people. And so part of that was this idea of the kinsman redeemer. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they outline this idea of family members uh, of marrying a widow of their family and giving that widow an heir so that that their fallen you know uh, brother that that family name could carry on right and this is the idea of the kinsman redeemer so she identifies that Boaz is a relative he's a kinsman he can he can redeem their line now um, what I don't know here is how Naomi knows where Boaz will be um, I know I get why she knows that he will be there during the day. Winnowing is a the end of the at the end of the harvest. They would winnow at the threshing floor. The flesh, threshing floor is a public place. 
all the farmers would take their grain there and they would do this process of winnowing, which was to separate all the grains. And, um, and it was a festive thing. It was like a big, big end of the harvest year kind of party. Everyone's happy. Look at all the bounty that God has provided. Uh, we're going to be okay for this next year. It, it was a great thing. So I get that she knew he would be there. What I'm not sure is how she knew he would be spending the night there. Uh, maybe that was a common practice in Bethlehem, uh, which is where we are in this, in this story. Um, but she somehow knows that Boaz is going to spend the night. Um, so then... Uh, something interesting we're going to see as we move through this story is that in chapter 2, there's like this ambiguous term for like Boaz's interest, right? He goes to his foreman and he does this kind of, Ruth is standing over here and he does this kind of, you know, she's single, uh, wor- she working for somebody? And, and you're, you're supposed to get this idea from the author that like he's already, he's seen her, he's noticed, he's, he's interested, right? But we're not really sure. Well, the interesting thing about chapter 3 is we're going to have a different kind of ambiguous, we're going to have a lot of ambiguous terms in chapter 3 for sex. So there's going to be this kind of uh, mood change in chapter 3. The first thing we see is that God is going to be suspiciously more absent from chapter 3 than the rest of the book. He's going to be more in the background than he's been this entire time. And, and when do we make our dumbest decisions? When God seems to be the most absent, right? So there's this idea that God isn't involved in this situation, but then there's really, there's three reasons that the author's going to use sexually charged terms during this this chapter. One is he's going to emphasize the the temptation and the humanity of the situation. This is not just like, we read Bible characters like they're really just kind of dry, like they're really just kind of like always you know, stone walls of exactly what they should be doing. Like, this is a man and a woman in the dark who like each other a lot. There's a sexual temptation there. There's a humanity to what's going on in this situation. Um, it This situation, this entire story happens in the dark. Um, and then the author actually goes out of his way to call them the man and the woman. He's emphasizing their humanity and this secret, dark encounter that could be something more. Uh, the second thing is he's, she's trying to cause suspense. These terms that he uses, the, the original audience would have immediately picked these up as possibly sexual. And, and the reason that that's important is because it would have caused them to go, wait, what's going to happen? Wait, are they, are they about to cross some lines? Are they about to do something inappropriate? It would have drawn the audience further into the story. Let me ask you this question. Does telling a story with literary tools make a true story any less true? No. We do this all the time. If I go to a concert and I come back and I go, there were a million people there. You understand I don't mean I counted. I stood at the door. I went one, two, three, all the way until I was like 900, 1 million. Right? It's not a literal technique. The point is there were a lot of people there. It felt like a million. So just because the, the author is using certain terms that he is designed to be ambiguous in this way, he's trying to give you a mood. He's trying to give you some kind of idea of how feelings were that in that night. He's not, uh, it's, it's not meant to be taken, uh, really in a, in a more literal way. Um, think about it like this. The Bible is true. It's always true. The question is, on our end, is figuring out how to understand it accurately. 
You have to understand accurately what, in what sense it's true in this moment, right? Um, and then the third reason that there's sexual terms in this is he's emphasizing the love story. This is the first time that we're going to see that this, this attraction between them, this goes both ways. These two people, they're in love. They, they, they care about each other. They've been in close proximity and they've seen each other's character. So the first sexually ambiguous term we get is the term threshing floor, right? Some of you are getting hot and bothered by that term right now, right? Listen, threshing floor was a sign for fertility. Now, that doesn't make any sense to us. We're like, threshing floor, that, you know, how is that sexual? But for them, it was the idea of this is a place that symbolizes fertility. And them meeting at a place that symbolizes fertility in the dark, that was possibly and potentially a sexual indication of this story. Uh, so, so then what happens? Look, look back in verse 3 again. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not reveal yourself to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall take notice of the place where he lies, and you shall go uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you should do. Okay, Naomi tells her, get all dolled up. Put on your best perfume. Put on your best dress. Make sure that you look as, you're as attractive as possible. Now, here's the thing. Naomi is not an idiot. This is our first indication, this idea of acting and trusting. Naomi doesn't distrust God, but she has a brain that she's been equipped with by God to use it. She doesn't know 100% that Boaz is interested, and she wants the best chance of success on this mission that she can get. So she tells her, get fixed up. And then she says, wait until he's eaten. And he's calm, and he's happy, and he's content. Everything in his life is good. Wait until after that point, right? Best chance of success. Then she says, then what? Wait until you see where he sleeps and uncover his feet. This is our next sexually charged term. This term is a little bit ambiguous. It might have caused the audience to go, uncover his what? And lay down? They are, they are on the edge of their seats with what is about to happen in this story. It is going off the rails. Okay? And, and that's designed to draw them in and to, to understand the, the humanity, the temptation, and the romance. So then, then Naomi says, then he will tell you what to do. This is actually our first clue that this isn't what, we, what it's shaping up to be at this moment. Because Naomi trusts Boaz's reputation and his character so much that she's sending Ruth alone into a situation where a bad person would easily be able to take advantage of her, and she's saying, he'll tell you what to do. And she has full confidence that that's not going to be something that's to her disadvantage. That's not going to be something that puts her in a compromising situation. Okay, so the next question I want to ask, I want to pause right here and ask a question. Is this an example of a woman initiating a relationship? Is that what's, what Ruth is doing right now? Here's the thing. Whenever you go into a story like this, you have to understand the cultural context of what's going on. Ultimately, what Ruth is doing in this situation is she's actually calling on Boaz to fulfill a duty to to, um, and, and we're going to see, actually, there's a reason why Boaz hasn't already done this. 
There's a reason that he's going to tell us why he hasn't already begun to fulfill this duty. And without Ruth uh, providing the opportunity, he doesn't know that he should initiate this. But this is not the same as saying that she's initiating it. Listen, girls have been creating opportunities for for generations, all right? Um, you know, you, you I heard a guy talking once about, you know, the guys are all standing there and the, and the girl in the olden times, she walks past and she drops her handkerchief. And the guy's like, oh, great, now I have an opportunity to talk to her. And he thinks he initiated that because women are just dropping handkerchiefs all over the place. She created the opportunity so that he could initiate, right? And that's what's happening here. Um, and, and let's face it, guys aren't that perceptive, all right? They will miss it unless you make it <laughs> billboard-sized letters. Hey, here's your opportunity, bud, all right? So so question is this, can girls initiate the, the relationship? Yes? No? Here's the real question, girls. Do you want a guy you have to lead? Do you want the guy you have to initiate it with? I'm not telling you it's a sin. What I'm telling you is look for a man who will lead you, who will be bold in that, not the guy that you have to lead and you have to initiate it with. That There's a framework for that in marriage. It's starting off on the wrong foot if you can't do that at the beginning of the relationship. Understand the cultural context of this lesson. Do you know what the next... Do you know what the next lesson in this lesson is if you don't understand the cultural context? Just jump into bed with the guy you want and see if it works out. That's not the lesson. That's not what's happening here. So if you don't understand the cultural context, you will pick up the wrong things. Lying down at his feet was a gesture of submission and respect. It was a gesture of humility. It wasn't a sexually charged moment where she just picked up the blanket and got in into bed with him. So Ruth, she obeys. Look in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down and at the end of, at the, end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. I'm not sure how he can tell in the dark, but uh, so he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your slave. Now spread your garment over the slave, um, over your slave, for you are a redeemer. Okay. Listen, people who want to make this, this story a story of hidden sin, they'll claim that Boaz is drunk here. He's not drunk. All right, cultural context. And on top of that, Boaz's character is not one where he just got finished winnowing grain all day and then just like shotgunned a few beers and laid down to take a nap, right? He's not drunk. He's full. He's cheerful. It's a good day. The, the harvests are over. The bounty has come in. He's happy. It says it happened at midnight. This is another literary tool. Midnight is when stuff happens in the Bible. When they reference in the Old Testament midnight, in the Hebrew, that was designed to show you like the darkest of the dark, the middle of the night when it was at its deepest, all right? So saying it happened at midnight is, is again, it's a literary tool. And then it says, uh, or so then it says he wakes up, and we're not really sure why he wakes up. Uh, I read one thing this week that said, you know, his feet were uncovered, so uh, the, the night's chill 
you know, got, got his feet and woke him up. Maybe he bumped into Ruth. I don't know. He wakes up. He says, who are you? This is key. Just a chapter before, when he saw her, he said, who does she belong to? This is intentional. The author is showing the elevation in her status. She went from who do you belong to to who are you? She has been elevated. And she says, I am your slave. Okay, now, listen, I cannot explain to you why we translate certain words the way we translate them in English, but just bear with me on this. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says servant. And in this verse, it says slave. That means something to our brains in English. It's actually backwards. In chapter 2, when she said, I, I'm lower than a servant, I'm your servant, I'm lower than your, than, your, than your maidservants, what she's saying is, I'm the lowest of the low. This term slave in this chapter, it's actually an elevation. What she's saying right now by saying, I'm your slave, is I'm a full-fledged Israelite. That's actually what that term, what she's indicating by that term is, I, I'm no longer the lowest of the low, I'm a full-fledged Israelite. I'm one of your people, right? And, and again, I don't know why we translate it that way, but here we are. Um, and, then, and then she says, throw your garment over me. This is a traditional indication of marital intent. So she was asking him again, not, you know, let's get in bed together, but, but propose essentially. Uh, indicate that you're, gonna mar- that you're ready to marry me. Um, and then she says, for you are a redeemer. This again, this is a statement of duty and legal status. She's calling on him to fulfill his duty. Look in verse 10. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than your first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you say, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. But now, although it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is also a redeemer more closely related than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and got up before one person could recognize another. And he said, do not let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the shawl that is, that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. Okay. Boaz says, you're so kind to me. Your first kind, you're, you've shown your last kindness to be more than your first kindness. Uh, you could have married for love or money. And, and this, this confused me for a minute because she loves him and he's got money. So it's like she is marrying for love and money. Like, you know, I, I didn't get it at first, but, but what's actually happening here is, um, so first of all, he indicates that she's a woman of excellence. I want to ask a question. How many of the girls in the room, raise your hand if you know what Proverbs 31 is about, if you're a girl? Proverbs 31, a few of you? Okay, guys. Any guys? Who knows what Proverbs 31 is about? One, two, three, okay, a couple. Here's the deal. We, we, a lot of times we harp on Proverbs 31 for women, and we say, here's, here's what a godly woman looks like. Here's what you should be trying to, to live up to biblically to be a godly woman. What we don't tell guys a lot of times is, hey, there's a checklist in the Bible for the kind of woman that you should want. That is the kind of woman that you should be looking for. What Boaz recognizes here is Ruth is that kind of woman, and all the guys in town know it. 
everybody's paying attention to Ruth. If you go read Ruth, like right next to Proverbs 31, it's like a description of her. All right. And so the indication is you have had plenty of attention from guys. You could have, you could have gotten any guys. Um, she could have chosen a younger man or a richer man, but she chose instead the man that can redeem her family line. So if she had married just whoever, that person doesn't redeem Naomi's line. But she is choosing to marry the man that will do that, which means she's marrying for duty. She's marrying for a responsibility. Now, she's not suffering while she's at it, right? This guy happens to be the guy she does love, but but she's marrying for the right reasons, okay? Um, and then it's revealed why Boaz hasn't acted yet. He's already thought about it. He's already investigated the situation, and he figured out he wasn't first in line. It's unclear if, if Ruth and Naomi knew this, but Boaz sure did. The reason he had not initiated yet is because it wasn't his right in line to do it, and it took Ruth showing him hey, here's your opportunity for him to say, okay, I'm on it. I'm going to do this now. Then he tells her to stay, right, to spend the night. Now, this is this gets weird. Like, why is he telling her to stay if they're in this situation where it may or may not be a good scenario? But the reality is it's the middle of the night. He can't send this young girl home in the dark by herself. That is dangerous. He's protecting her in that moment. It also indicates the purity of the situation. The term lay down used by Boaz there is actually the first term we get in the chapter that has no sexual implication whatsoever. In this moment, that is a pure term of, of the purity of the situation. Stay here so that you'll be safe. Both of these people are dedicated to doing this right. They're dedicated to the outcome being, being reached in the right manner. Listen, do the ends justify the means? The answer is never. They never do. Why? Because the ends, the outcome, is always in God's hands. You are called to one thing. You are called to live right each moment. The outcome is what God makes it. The ends don't justify the means. See, uh, and then and then he says, um, they, it says they got up before they could be recognized, so it's still dark, and he basically tells her to sneak out. And again, when you read this in English, you're like, they clearly know something's wrong. He's saying, don't let anybody see that you were here. That sounds like, that sounds like there's bad news, right? That's almost a walk of shame type situation, right? But here's the reality. Boaz is a very savvy businessman. He knows already in his head what he's got to do. You'll see next week in chapter 4 the negotiation he's going to go through. And he knows he's about to lose bargaining power if people understand the personal interest he has in the resolution of this, of this deal. He wants her to sneak out because he doesn't want to tip his hand. He's trying to pre- prevent uh, making it harder to work this out. So he says, okay, you're going to sneak out. And then, and then we started, listen, we started this story with all these sexually charged terms, but what we find out is that that was an indication of the temptation, not their intent. Ruth and Boaz didn't have the intent to be in a sexual situation. They just had temptation. But both of these people, they come out unscathed from this 
tempting situation because they were dedicated to the right things. They knew what mattered more than just that moment. And then in verse 15, he provides for her, gives her a bunch of, uh, a bunch of grain. Um, this is partially to make it evident to Boaz. You ever, you ever been trying to tell a, or sorry, evident to Naomi. You ever been trying to tell a friend like, no, I swear she's into me. And your friend's like, she's not into you. Or are you trying to tell your, you know, I, I swear he, you know, he's been texting me. He's asked me outright. And, and your friend's like, no, you're reading into it, right? But what's happening here is he's giving her, he's giving weight to her story. There is this overwhelming evidence that the night has gone well, that Boaz is interested. There's no way to avoid the reality of all this grain that she comes back with. Okay, so we discussed Ruth as a Proverbs 31 woman. Let's discuss Boaz for a second. The first thing I want to do really quick, I want to define dating. All cultures have an expression or a process for coupling, for for coming together as a couple and then being married, right? Everyone has throughout all human history and throughout all kinds of cultures, we all have this expression or this process. It's supposed to be, I'm sorry, um, ours, however, is easily the most ambiguous. Our expression for coupling is defined by whoever's doing the defining at that moment based on their emotional feelings with that person, right? So it's never, it's never standardized. And that actually, if you look through history, that is not the case. Almost every culture's expression of the coupling process has always been very standardized. There were rules. There was a way that you worked through that system. Ours is not like that. So, um, even though all, all cultures have this expression of coupling, um, there's one purpose. It's supposed to be a process of evaluation that you move through. It's not designed to be a status that you sit in, a new confusing state of being that you just never seem to get out of. It's a process that you are designed to start and go to the end with someone else and not stay in it any longer than you have to. Okay, guys, the Bible illustrates two things about your sisters in Christ. They are to be thought of in one of two ways. They are either as a mother to you or they are as a sister to you. And then one of those sisters becomes a wife, right? So if it, if you date for the purpose of evaluating your Christian sister to become your wife, then, then if, if it's not, if that Christian sister isn't going to be your wife, stop moving through that process. And if she is going to be your wife, don't just sit in the process. We're like, yes, this is the one. So we're going to date for three more years, and we're going to be engaged for a year, and then we're going to get married. No, that's not the design of the process. Listen, part of the reason that, that we don't take all the benefits that come with marriage when we start dating, it's designed to create a tension that propels you through the process faster. Because when you've identified this is the one for me, I'm going to get married to this woman, and you don't get all the benefits of being married to that person, you go, we got to get through this process. <laughs> that's the whole point. And if that's not the woman that you're supposed to be with, stop the process. Get out of it. Don't keep moving. Are you treating girls like your sisters? Are you looking out for their best? 
or are you just looking out for taking advantage of them? So let's talk about Boaz. How does Boaz treat Ruth? In chapter 2, we see that he protects her. Listen, protection is not just fist fighting. I get it. We're not, we're not all on the same level of combat standard. That's not my point. The point is, are you preparing yourself to be the kind of man that can protect your future wife? If all you're doing is playing video games, you are not preparing to be a husband that can protect your wife. You're not doing it. That's the first thing. And then, and honestly, the tack onto that, do you know the, the other way you're supposed to protect your wife? Spiritually. You can't do that unless you are following Jesus. It's impossible. So you have to be following Jesus. You have to be able to have a job, hold a job, have some aspirations to provide, and yeah, if if maybe work out some, right? Maybe be able to, to also <laughs> physically protect her, right? These are all good things. Boaz, in this moment, he is, he's able to protect her. Then number two, he puts her first. The Bible tells us to die for our wives. It says to love them like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that means up to the point of death. That means not taking advantage of them. Boaz didn't do what was most fun for him in this scenario. He did what was right for Ruth. He even says, if this guy will redeem you, good. Because that would have been the right answer for Ruth in that situation. Wouldn't have been what was most fun for him. Wouldn't have been what he necessarily wanted, except what he wanted more than anything was for her to be taken care of. Three, he states his intent up front. Listen, guys, rejection hurts, and you'll live, right? It, it, like it, You will live through it, but state your intent up front. Tell a girl how you feel and what you want out of a relationship. Don't leave her in this ambiguity. It's called leadership. Again, there is a model for this in marriage. If you can't do it in dating, you're not just going to magically wake up one day married and be like, oh, I'm the, I'm the best leader now. I figured it out because we got married. That's not the way it works. And the fourth thing he does is he makes a commitment. Now, this one scares us, especially with the way we do our, the way we date. But listen, I'm not saying that dating is equal to marriage, that if you're dating someone, you're committed to being married to them. Fine. Commit to dating. Commit to the evaluation process. And, and you know what else that implies? Break up well. Break up well. Don't ghost people. Don't just disappear. Actually tell a girl, this is what's going on. This is why God doesn't have this for me. This is why I need to end this evaluation process with you because we're not, you're not the sister that's supposed to become the wife. And so if we're, if that's not the case, I have to end this evaluation process. Listen, she may get mad at you. It doesn't matter. God has called you as a man to live a certain way, to be a certain kind of man. Which means even if she gets mad, if she doesn't do what she's supposed to do, that doesn't matter. You have to do what you're supposed to do. Our behavior is never dependent on somebody else's response to that behavior. She's God's daughter. Are you treating her that way? Girls, Ruth encouraged Boaz to be a certain kind of man. Now, she saw his character. She knew that he would live up to that. But she was encouraging him to do what he was supposed to do. 
are you building up your Christian brothers to be certain kinds of men? We're all called to build each other up. And that means more than just complimenting his shoes. That means actual advice. You know, some guys just need reps. Some guys just need reps at holding normal conversation with a girl. Now, listen, I get the, the problem. The problem is that sometimes guys take this wrong. And every girl is terrified that they're going uh, to be kind to one of their brothers and their brother's going to turn and be like, she's totally into me. <laughs> right? That's the fear. And, and you know what? Sometimes girls get mad at you and tell, tell people that you've been leading them on after one date and you say, this is what God has for me. So we're even, all right? Just, just do what you're supposed to do and don't worry about their response, all right? Be gracious. Both directions, by the way. But do you know what one of the most attractive features in a girl is? If she's gracious. If she can be gentle, even when we're stupid sometimes. And by the way, women, in the same way I told men that being a leader doesn't just appear the day after they find their, you know, their wife, being gracious isn't something that will bloom in you because you met the right man. If you can't be a gracious woman all the time, it doesn't just show up in marriage. You will not be a gracious wife. Learn how to be gracious now, and then you will be gracious to the man that God puts in your life to be your husband. Let's read 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She also said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know the mat how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. So the next part of the story is we see that girls do what girls do. Girl talk. She goes home and she gives all the deets. And then there's two things that happen in verse 18 that I want to point out to you. One is we see Boaz's reputation. Naomi knows that Boaz will settle this. She, she's, she knows that Boaz is the man who will go take care of it. And then the other thing is that they have faith that it will work out. Not how it will work out, but that it will work out. That's the kind of faith God wants from us. A lot of times we're telling God, this is what it working out looks like. And God's like, no, I have a much better way it's going to work out. And you're just setting yourself up for disappointment because it's not going to happen your way. They have faith that it will work out. And what is their response? We've been talking about acting or trusting and trusting and not acting. What is their response in this moment? They wait. But you see what happened? They were doing stuff. They had a plan. They prepped for their plan. They enacted their plan. They did things. They acted. They never acted outside of trusting in God's plan. And yet, at this moment, they know that the right answer is to wait. So, so when do I act and when do I trust? Yes. Neither. Both. It, it doesn't matter. The point is, read your Bible and, and use your God-given brain in accordance with what God says in his word, this is your boundary, right, for your actions, for your thoughts. And if you are using your God-given brain within the boundaries of what God is teaching you day after day as you read his word, you'll know 
when to act and when to wait and when to do both. I, you know, like the weirdest things happen in the Bible and we just kind of ignore them. These are normal people. That's the whole point of Ruth is that there's no water into wine moments. God doesn't just give Boaz a vision. Th these people are acting according to their God-given brains and wisdom, but in accordance with what God has for them. Seek God, trust Him, and use your brain. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.